Do you think that classical music is not for you and you don't know where to start? Or maybe you're a fan already and would welcome a fresh approach. You've come to the right place. Perfect pitch is for everyone, beginners or experts, whatever your age. Lend Nick Healy Hutchinson your ears for his weekly dose of classical music that will enrich your life. Last week, I referred with some disbelief to Benjamin Britten's scathing assessment of Giuseppe Verdi. So today I want to start by putting the case for the defence. It would be hard to overstate the popularity and impact which the Italian composer enjoyed during a life of 87 years ending in 1901. Of humble upbringing, he showed precocious musical talent from an early age and even became the official paid organist at his local church at the age of eight. By the mid-1850s, he'd already amassed enough fame and fortune from his operas to dispense with music altogether, enabling him to concentrate on his love of the countryside. Although in much later years, he was persuaded to write three of his most popular operas, Aida, Otello and Falstaff, that last one being his only comic opera of 29. He was the natural successor to Bellini, Donizetti and Rossini, in the end surpassing them all. With him, two major changes in Italian opera took place. The first is that he dispensed with recitative, that's the general chit-chat which occurs between arias, either spoken or sung without tune, replacing it with continuous singing, so the tunes just keep rolling out. And the other change was to give the orchestra considerably more prominence, particularly in the characterization of his heroes and heroines. To illustrate that point, I'm going to play the prelude to one of his most popular operas, La Traviata, which had its first performance in March 1853. That performance was not greeted with enormous enthusiasm because it focused on an unsavoury high-class courtesan, Violetta, as depicted in a contemporary novel by Alexandre Dumas. So it wasn't just the subject matter which did not go down well, it was the fact that it was not a historical subject. Nowadays, Traviata ranks alongside Aida, Rigoletto, Don Carlos, Otello and Falstaff as being one of the most widely performed operas all over the world. This may well be familiar to you, but I've selected it because of the way it so cleverly gives you a taste of the full story in its orchestration. The opening bars take you immediately to the tragic ending of Violetta's life. Verdi portrays her sorry fate with this melancholic tune on the strings, very briefly interrupted by his trademark umpapa beat on the horns by way of referring to the high living she adopts to escape thoughts of their inevitable demise. Listen then to how the violins, reflecting her party-loving lifestyle, skip lightly above the ever-present reminder of her fate, as portrayed by the cellos. It's all there in just a few minutes. The prelude to Act One of Verdi's La Traviata is played here by the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Claudio Abado.
In an earlier podcast, we played a ballade by Chopin, and now I want to play you another dramatic piece, his Scherzo No. 2. This is a 1966 recording by the Argentine Marta Argerich, whom we heard playing a Scarlatti sonata recently. For those of you who have not heard her before, I didn't really big her up enough then. She is quite simply one of the best pianists there's ever been. Now, in her 80s, she has never really enjoyed the public arena, but her playing is characterized by tenderness and real passion in equal measure. This demanding piece displays those skills in full. Robert Schumann is supposed to have likened this scherzo to the poetry of Byron, so overflowing with tenderness, boldness, love and contempt. Apparently, the opening notes, according to the composer himself, are supposed to be a question, with the reply in the notes following. I have no idea what the question is, but it's easy to see what Chopin means. Wagner once described Chopin as a composer for the right hand. It's pieces like this which add some weight to that appraisal.
and we're going to stay with the piano for a few more minutes. Beethoven wrote five concertos for piano and orchestra. In its entirety, the fourth is probably my personal favourite, but the slow movement of his fifth, known as the Emperor, is surely amongst the loveliest of all slow movements of any piano concerto. Although the longest of the slow movements in Beethoven's five, stay with me, it's not a minute, even a second too long. Composed around 1809, the piece is deserving of its name by virtue of its length and magnitude, even if Beethoven would probably not have approved of the term. At the time he was writing it, he was taking shelter in the cellar of his brother's house, while Vienna was being bombarded by the French under the self-crowned Emperor Napoleon. It's believed Beethoven was about 60% deaf by now, so he was unable to play its first performance in 1810 as he had done with his previous four, and his attempt to perform it in 1811 had to be abandoned. And so to the music, which I really can only describe as sublime, one simple definition of that word being of very great excellence or beauty. It has a dreamy, introspective quality about it, in complete contrast to the majestic first movement and galloping jubilant last. The two tunes are gorgeous, with lovely interaction between piano and orchestra, especially in its closing moments with flute and gentle strings. And in the opening, I always find myself thinking of There's a Place for Us from the song Somewhere in Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story. Bernstein was certainly a Beethoven fan, so maybe the idea is not so crazy. Listen out also for the way the piano climbs the keyboard on trills. It's extraordinarily beautiful. As this second movement finishes, Beethoven unusually heads straight into the third, a device later used by others, most notably Schumann in his only piano concerto, by letting the oboe drop a note to allow the piano to introduce the opening of a final romp. I hope your enjoyment of the previous six or seven minutes is not spoiled by being left in the lurch at the end. The second movement of Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 5 is played here in a live performance by Hélène Grimaud with a Frankfurt Radio Symphony Orchestra conducted by Pavo Yevi.
Those of you old enough, or perhaps I should say more specifically, interested enough, might recall that before the days of the Premier League, there used to be something called the First Division. My father and I had an understanding that composers and artists would fall into the First or Second Division. And so, to use the now almost prerequisite phrase when announcing a list, in no particular order, Beethoven, Bach, Brahms, Mozart, Schubert, Schumann, Sibelius, Richard Strauss, Handel, Haydn, Wagner, Chopin would all have their places 
fixed permanently in the first division with no prospect of relegation. And, to coin another current phrase, other composers are of course available. The table would have no limit, but you could not put any of those in the same group as, say, Johann Strauss, Franz Lehár, or Arthur Sullivan. Or, he says with some trepidation, even Victor Healy Hutchinson, Edvard Grieg, or Rossini. So these would find their places in the second division, and with little prospect of promotion. It was just a bit of fun, of course, and it was based on nothing more or less than the most scientifically stringent and robust of criteria, personal opinion. Composers who are now only known for one or two works would automatically find their place in the lower ranks, however prolific and influential that output may have been during their lives. One such example is the French Baroque composer Marc-Antoine Charpentier, who nowadays is only famous for one piece. This one is Prelude to the Te Deum, played by the National Philharmonic Orchestra, and null point to you if you don't know what this is now used for. And at the risk of upsetting anyone, another French composer, Camille Saint-Saëns, for all his talent, would also sit in our second division, although I'm beginning to have second thoughts about this. Instead of playing something famous, I'm going to leave you with something I don't expect many of you will have heard before, but it's fresh and full of charm, so we'll definitely be hearing more of his music in future podcasts. The Rigodon, a lively, spirited dance by Camille Saint-Saëns, is played here by the London Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Geoffrey Simon.
that's it for now. Thank you for listening to Perfect Pitch with Nick Healy Hutchinson. He'll be back again next week with some more treasures for you, so please do join him then. And you can subscribe to this podcast by clicking on the link below.